the Gilda's maximum lawyers community of legal entrepreneurs who are taking their businesses and lives to the next level. As a Guild member, you'll build relationships, be held accountable, and learn strategies specifically designed to get you unstuck and accelerate your plan for growth. Members are also granted exclusive access to masterminds hosted around the country. Our next event is coming up, and we're heading to Scottsdale, Arizona. There's something truly magical about the power of these in-person connections where real-time breakthroughs happen. Picture this. You're surrounded by like-minded law firm owners tackling your business and mindset challenges together. The energy is electric, the insights are transformative, and the results are game-changing. Investing in yourself is the best decision you'll ever make. The knowledge, strategies, and breakthroughs you'll gain are priceless assets that will supercharge your practice and propel you forward. Join the Guild and secure your ticket to Scottsdale at the best possible price by visiting maxlawevents.com. You build the social capital by giving it all away, right? Some of that means you're not going to be for everyone. You're going to express strong opinions and it's going to chase some people away. But if you can get to the true fans who do trust you, you're not being discounted anymore. People are willing to give you whatever it takes because they are fans of you and your practice personally. Run your law firm the right way. The right way. This is the Maximum Liar Podcast. Maximum Liar Podcast. Your hosts, Jim Hacking and Tyson Mutrix. Let's partner up and maximize your firm. To the show. Welcome back to the Maximum Lawyer Podcast. I'm Jim Hacking. And I'm Tyson Mutrix. What's up, Jimmy? Oh, after some technical glitches, we finally got on the air about 14 minutes late. So we're all here. The audio's working. The video's working. It's better than that time we did with Johnny Finch when I was out in the park. That didn't work out so well. So we're here. It's good. And I'm really excited about our guest today. Yeah, I am too. I think it's going to be a really good topic. I think it's someone that we probably should have had on a long time ago. So you want to introduce Michael? Yeah, so I think Michael needs his own podcast. He has lots of opinions. You know, it's funny because I followed him on Twitter for a long time before actually Don McClure invited him to our conference. And the best debriefing of all after the conference was with Michael because, you know, sometimes our podcast and our time with our friends is, oh, Mitch, you're the greatest. Oh, no, Jim, you're the greatest. Oh, Tyson, you're the greatest. Oh, no, John Fisher, you're the greatest. And Michael's always there. You guys are a bunch of dummies. I don't know what any of you are doing. (laughs) Bring bring you back down to earth. I remember he wrote a little blog post during the conference, and I'm putting him on the spot right out of the box because he paid me a compliment, and he said that I think he thought coming in that this was going to be like a bros session, and he was glad that it wasn't a bros session. But he did say that he took issue a little bit with our name, Maximum Lawyer. So I'd love to hear his thoughts, because I don't know if I've ever explained to Michael where we came up with the name Maximum Lawyer. All right, there was some bro stuff, okay? Let's not pretend that a conference with a bunch of personal injury attorneys is not going to have some bro stuff happen. But, yeah, Maximum Lawyer, I kind of, I want, like, an opening to this to be more like Maximum Lawyer, and then, like, choo-choo, and laser sounds. That's what I want from that. Yes. That would be awesome. Yeah. Michael, we're really glad to have you on the show, and I really do mean it. I do think you need your own podcast, because... You do have a unique way of looking at things, and you're not afraid to be a contrarian. And I, I really got a lot out of our breakfast that we had a couple weeks after Max Law, so I'm really glad to have you on the show. Thanks. Yeah, I did have my own podcast for a little while, and 
when I figured out that it was just me and my mom and that my mom's listening time ended at three minutes, I got some of those advanced metrics that after three minutes, my mom's like, I'm out of here. I figured maybe I should change that. But uh, but actually, I have Lawyer Forward, the podcast, will relaunch fairly soon with a bunch of audio that I've gotten with this book. I want to have a very different format. So because we're doing it with a very different approach, a much more highly edited course-based approach, it'll it'll relaunch soon, but it'll be pretty different from what it was before. Mike, I'm pretty sure that our podcast was just us and our moms and friends listening to it at first too. So that's kind right. of how it starts. But so, I mean, we know who you are, but I don't, not sure. everybody knows who you are. So talk a little bit about yourself, what you do, things like that. Yeah, briefly, I went to law school at the age of 30 with four kids in tow, which I would recommend to no one. I had worked for almost a decade before that in logistics and supply chain management, transportation. And, uh, you know, I was one of those smart kids that you go to law school because you have to. And so I felt like I really needed to go. I went to the University of Texas School of Law. And it was one of those highly ranked schools, so if you get in, you go kind of things. And when I went in, about half the class at UT was getting big firm jobs, but I went in in 2008, so right before the banks collapsed and caused the economy to break down. So our group was really the last group that didn't know what the economy was about to do. I had decided while I was in law school to have my own firm. I had enough business background before that... I felt comfortable doing it, and that was blasphemy at Texas. You don't you don't go to the University of Texas School of Law to then go open your own practice. And and I started a group while I was there for future solos, and nobody showed up. I, I would do these great sessions for a school with 1,200 kids and with practicing lawyers to come talk about what it is to really practice law, and no one would show. And so it took a little while, but after all my friends left law school, now they all show up. They all call me. And so after a while, I started a conference. Uh, it's called the Lawyer Forward Conference, and it happens in Austin, Texas every year. And again, we're going to have some changes to that this year. But I've had a practice in Texas, but most of my time now is spent consulting and writing. I'm in the midst of writing a book right now, so pretty busy with that. But m most of what I'm doing now is consulting about practice and future law stuff, I guess. Michael, we want to dive into a little bit about your conference and definitely about your book, but what do you think it was about you or what did you spot back in 2008 when you were in law school when either you saw that being a solo was going to be the path for you or that there was going to be the seismic shift in the legal field so that there'd be more and more lawyers going out on their own? Yeah, I can't have a boss just as a personality. That's just a fundamental problem that I have. I've never done well with bosses. And I, I'm not saying that as an awesome thing. I, it's probably a character flaw, but I just know myself well enough to know. And I was old enough, you know, but by the time I was 30, I had a pretty good sense of what I wanted to do with my day-to-day -day life. And, and I find, you know, especially with law, law is not a business plan. It's a product. It's a monetization strategy. It's how we turn knowledge into cash so that we can live. How we do that is really up to us. And I knew that playing was kind of a requirement for me, and so I, I tried to set up a business where I could do that. And eventually it got to the point where the ideas that I was experimenting with and playing with, they just got more interesting than the practice. And so I've since really shifted out of practice, and I deal mostly with the ideas. So, Mike, let's talk a little bit about your book that you're, you're putting together now. What's the basic setup of the book, and what are you trying to accomplish with it? Sure. Well, I'll, I, what I'll do is I'll tell you guys the three main arguments in the book, and I lay these out in the introduction. So these are 
these are the big ideas handed out for free. People can use them and run and never buy the book, and they'll have a pretty good sense. But then the book goes on to kind of explain the how and the why behind it. But there are three main ideas in the book. The first is that financial capital is not a good play for especially solo attorneys, but social capital is highly available and should be the leverage point for people trying to run their own firm. The second thing is that the two most valuable pieces of any transaction are the relationship and deep expertise. And because of that, I believe that even though lawyers are told we are entrepreneurs and we are experts, I don't think either of those is true for most lawyers. But I believe that lawyers should focus on one of those or the other, either focus on building an audience or focus on building deep expertise. And then the third thing is from my logistics background, I believe that those people should connect in what I call a legal supply chain. It's a it's a different way to structure human capital, to structure labor in a way that it matches demand. Law has a big problem of not doing a very good job of matching demand with people, with labor. And so this legal supply chain is just a different approach for how we should organize law firms. So with the first one, talking about financial capital not being a good play, but rather we should be focusing on social capital, What, in layman's terms, what do you mean by that, Michael? I thought you might ask me that question, so I actually pulled it up in a section in the book. The Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, which is an organization in Paris, they define social capital as networks together with shared norms, values, and understandings that facilitate cooperation within or among groups, which is a really nerdy way to say it's connections, it's people connected together, and the things that they share, the things that they all believe are true. And so when I talk about making a social capital play, what I'm talking about is connections with humans and establishing shared values. So so to give an example, uh, my wife and I were considering moving to Guatemala. We were going to move to Antigua, Guatemala, up in the mountains. And we knew when we moved that we'd have help unloading a truck, that we didn't have to worry about showing up and get getting help unloaded. And the reason is because of our church group. We're LDS or Mormon, and we, we refer to it as the Mormon Mafia. You can seriously move anywhere, and there will be a bunch of dudes who show up and help you unload a truck. That's social capital. And what's interesting about social capital is it delivers things that you would otherwise have to pay for. So think about me moving to Guatemala and feeling totally comfortable that I can plug in to that network with shared values. That's social capital I would otherwise have to pay for financially. For lawyers, we don't have, most solos don't have a lot of money. Most of us don't have a lot of money saved up. We don't have access to loans that are very difficult for us to get. We can't get outside financing. So when we're talking about levers to pull for particularly new solo firms, but solo firms in general, social capital is so much more available. And in this age, it's just easier and more important to develop. Social capital will give you the other stuff. The other stuff will not give you social capital. You can't buy respect, networks, authority. You can't you can't go pay for that, but all of those things can generate money for you. So it's just a better focus for a business owner, in my opinion. So, Mike, what made you – I mean, there's a lot of books out there on the business of law. What made you want to write a book about it? And, and I guess everyone talks about everything in, in that sure. in, when it comes to running a business. So what made you think that you should get into that and also write a book? Because I wanted my wife to hate me and question all of my life choices, that was primarily what moved me. No, so my background, like I said, is in logistics. And so when I talk about the legal supply chain, it's a very kind of different view, a different structure for 
for law. And so it, it took me a while, frankly. For a while, I thought, I don't really have much to add. I don't have many strong opinions. I, I don't have much authority. And eventually, I figured out that my I call it, when I talk to my kids, I talk about the Elijah one principle. I don't know if you guys know who Hakeem the Dream was, but uh, or is Hakeem the Dream, Elijah one played for the Rockets, and he was he's a big man and had amazing footwork. And everybody tried to figure out why does he have this great footwork? Well, it's because he grew up playing soccer, and so he overlapped the skill of the soccer and the skill of the basketball. I call to my kids, I call this the Elijah one principle. For me, I'm overlapping my logistics background and my law education and experience and putting them in with a new model that I hope is tried. I was reading Ken Grady at one point and he said one of the things that law is really lacking is theories. We don't do a good job of playing, of testing, and of presenting theories and then going and trying them. Instead we're all we're doing some iteration of the Cravath model which was we could talk about that but that was a theory. We all adopted it, and nobody's really tried to change that much since. And this this represents a very different approach to labor, to connection, to how we interact with society, and how we do our best work. So, frankly, I'm writing it because it's different. It sounds different. And when you get to the next point, your second idea about how lawyers need to be focusing on relationships or deep expertise. I, I love your tweets and your commentary on deep expertise. Is that more than niching down? Is that more than developing a specialty? What do you mean when you say deep expertise? Right. There's a great book on this called The Business of Expertise by David Baker that I would recommend anybody go read. It's fantastic. But specifically the way Baker talks about it in his book, he says that deep expertise is pattern recognition and analogies. And what he means by that is Basically, you're playing with case studies. You go and experience enough. You get into these cases. You evaluate what's real about them, what's not. You look for what's common. And you develop strong opinions. And you take those strong opinions, and now you analogize them to another environment, another uh, case, whatever that means. For us, case means something specific. But in, in the business of expertise, he's saying take the accrued knowledge of patterns and apply that to something new. And in the publishing, in the teaching, in the writing and speaking and taking strong opinions, you've added something to society that can be tested, that can be tried. It's that ability to think deeply, to think originally, to have strong opinions, and then to analogize to other experiences. That's deep expertise. All right, Mike, I want your deep expertise and I want your strong opinion on this. There's a variety of opinions on this, but I've heard two major opinions. One is that we're going to more of a small attorney kind of model where that's what people want is that one attorney for everything kind of thing. Or I want a big major firm that takes on a bunch of cases that it, that's highly specialized for kind of arguments for both sides. Where's the law headed? Yes. <laughs> and so in the book, the second thing that I'm arguing is one of the main principles of the book is that access and expertise are not compatible. You can't text a lawyer and get deep expertise. You're going to get knowledge, but you're not going to get deep, thoughtful expertise applied to your particular situation. But consumers expect both. They expect both law and order and Amazon. And those two conflicting, that's what you're talking about, are those two conflicting expectations from consumers. And what we do as lawyers now, if you look at like Clio's legal trend report that says lawyers are billing 1.7 hours a day, 
that's expressing to me that we're trying to do both at the same time, and that's a problem because they're not compatible. So the argument that I'm making in that second point is that you should pick one of those models. The business models are very different. I give the example of marketing. If you are an access-focused business, the big firm, transactional, taking a lot of cases, you are trying to be where the consumer is. You care about things like SEO and advertising and things that the expert doesn't care about. The expert markets by developing and demonstrating deep expertise. So the example that I give for that is uh, Alan Dershowitz. So, and I give him not because he's gone off the rails recently, but because my dad said to me once, doesn't Alan Dershowitz get to charge so much because he's old? And I'm like, dude, no, that's not why. Dur there are plenty of old lawyers I know who are grinding cases in the middle of nowhere, Texas, because they didn't develop deep expertise. Alan Dershowitz can charge what the freak he wants to charge, and you don't get to call him. Like, you have to work hard to get to him. And so because the marketing is so different between those two, I advise that you pick one. And then after you pick one, you connect via that legal supply chain. So that's the third principle that answers your question of, if I choose to be one or I choose to be the other, then what I'm agreeing to is either the client is not getting really helpful service, if I'm an expert business and not trying to be right in front of them, or they're not getting deep expertise, if I'm being an audience-focused business. The problem is they expect both, and the way to solve that is to have that intentionally managed supply chain that connects them. So you, as somebody who wants to build a big, you know, I'm assuming something about you that may not be true, Tyson, but... If you want to build a, a larger solopreneur kind of scaled business, you want to grow, you want to sell to the masses and whatever that means for you, then that doesn't mean that you always only have to do what I call good enough law, where you're just giving people just enough to get them past. You might deliver that, and frankly, as an access business, you have to be willing to accept that you might deliver just good enough. But because you're a solutions engine, you're just trying to get people solutions to their problems, however that comes. But you can still get people deep expertise if you connect them in the right moments to the deep experts. So it's a uh, what I'm arguing for is a collaboration model that's based on the supply chain. So again, getting back to your question, the answer is yes. It's going both directions. Or it better, or we're screwed, I guess is how I would put it. Michael, I'll be interested to read this part of the book, especially about the deep expertise, but how do lawyers develop that deep expertise and how do they make money while they're trying to become deep experts? And then, I mean, I would imagine that there are very few lawyers with deep expertise. Maybe. I think it's really difficult to quantify because I was talking to um, a professor from Texas A&M, Milan Markovich, and he was talking about lawyer satisfaction, and he, he gave me this data that showed that solos are unusually satisfied. It was some 85% of lawyers feel successful, of solo lawyers feel successful, which I just think is asinine. I, I, I really wanted to dig into that data. And the only way they were identifying whether someone was a solo or not was by how many lawyers were in the firm. If you have one lawyer, you are a solo. But as you guys both know, there's a huge difference between what I would call a huge solo or, or a true solo, right? Somebody who's literally old guy churning cases in B County, Texas, trying to do it all, right? There's a big difference between that person and a scaled expert who has a lot of connections to a lot of people. So there's not very good data out there about how many lawyers one might call 
a true expert or is trying to develop that business model. In the book, I actually reference and, and would defer to David Baker's point on this. He uses a process called getting to know, K-N-O-W. It's a play on uh, getting to yes, that, that classic book. And he says, basically, list off all the things if you are a true expert in that subject that you've niched down to, right? If you've, He calls it positioning. If you've positioned down to an important problem, list all of the things you would have a strong opinion about if you were an expert in that area. And then tie to that a medium, something you like to do to create 3,000 words on it. So if you like to give talks, put, say, for this particular thing, I'm going to give a talk. For this particular thing, I'm going to do a podcast or a book or a blog post, whatever it is, whatever medium you like to use, and then set a deadline. Put a date on there that says, by that date, I'm going to write something, say something, teach something very publicly about that issue that I want to have a deep opinion on. In the writing, there's that old cliche, I write so I know what I know. In the writing, in the creating, you will formulate these opinions. You'll do the legwork to to develop the deep expertise, and then you test it. You, you put it out to the world. You'll be questioned. You'll be beat up, and then you can make adaptations as, as you get new data. There's a book, uh, Tom Nichols, he writes about uh, the death of expertise, it's called, and he says the difference between you and me and regular Joes and deep experts is experts know that expertise is a process of being wrong. It's a scientific process of developing these deep opinions, putting them out there, and then by peer review, correcting them. So I really like Baker's process of getting to know because it forces you to do that work. All right, Mike, so Nick Richwain has a question. He says, big law or solo law, are we still going to experience the commoditization of the practice of law? Again, yes and no. So when I'm thinking, it's funny because I got in big trouble because at one point I said big law firms, their most valuable asset is their social awareness, is their is their brand, and that they should get rid of all the lawyers in their firms, that they should leverage with totally different types of employees and just cash in on the social capital and connect with uh, deep experts outside the firm. But anyway, yes, there will be commoditization, and it's fine. In fact, commoditization is great because commoditization is referring to things that can be repeated. That's that's what a commodity is. It's something that, that can be repeated. And when we're delivering good enough solutions to the majority of people who a good enough solution is sufficient, then you can really start to charge for the deep expertise. We see this all the time. I worked in logistics. I worked in freight forwarding, and I'll give the example of a motorcycle. We had this motorcycle that some guy in Dubai spent a bajillion dollars to purchase, this antique motorcycle. We, as the freight forwarder, had special ability to package and handle that thing, and so we charged the heck out of that guy to do that highly detailed process of packaging it. But once it got onto the plane, that was a commoditized step in the process. The airline knows how to make money, but that's a commoditized step. And then when it was delivered to the guy in Dubai, there was another high service point. The point is, if you look at a supply chain, some of the pieces are highly commoditized and some of them are not. The problem with the idea of the commoditization of law is that we're acting as if that's the whole process. 
the whole process is not commoditized. If you think about it properly and design it properly, properly, there are pieces that are commoditized. The other pieces, you're developing social capital and doing deep expertise, and you can never commoditize that. You'll never commoditize Alan Dershowitz. It's not going to happen. The people that I follow aren't nearly as intellectual as you, the people you follow, Michael, but Dean Jackson always talks about the last 10 yards or the last 10 yards of the drive. You know, you always are going to have to have that expert to sort of do the hand-holding or do the thing that a computer can't do. You were kind enough to send us a chapter of your book, and mm -hmm. I want to sort of wrap up the talk or our conversation with the topic that you raised in there, and that is sort of this fundamental problem that we have in 2018 that basically the consumers don't trust us, that lawyers have lost that trust of the public. And, you know, it's just so easy to talk about lawyer jokes, but it's much deeper than that about how people would rather just not hire an attorney if they could ever avoid it. Right. Yeah, there's a great study uh, from 1970 by George Akerlof called The Market for Lemons. And at the time that this study came out, people mocked him and said that this is a terrible, terrible article. What he did was he predicted that if if there's information asymmetry is the term, we used to call it the expert gap. I cite a couple of books that used to tell lawyers and, and consultants to use this expert gap. And the expert gap is basically, I'm going to make you so scared that you feel like you need me, that nobody understands this thing but me, so I'm going to scare the heck out of you so you need me. What he talked about in this market for lemons was the used car market, and basically he showed that if there's big information disparity, if the seller knows way more than the buyer, the buyer has no good way to discern between one car and another in this case and doesn't have the information to know how broken that car is. What the buyer will do is discount the value of the car. So what that means is if you're selling me for a car for $10,000, my brain, if I don't know anything about that car, is saying, well, I'm only going to pay 9000 because it could be a lemon. And if it's a lemon, I got to factor in that risk and I'm going to pay less for it. The problem is that the seller then only sells lemons because he can't make money on the peaches anymore. If, you, if you're going to discount the value of that vehicle, no matter what he does, why in the world would he ever sell the real good stuff? So he, he gets to the point that he only sells the bad stuff. And, and this is adverse market selection, Akerlof calls it. And what he argues in there is eventually that kills that market. Because you'll only have low-quality providers, you'll only have distrust, and when you look at the factors that he mentions, law is at that point. People don't trust us. People, because of that expert gap, because people don't know us and don't trust us, they're discounting the value. And the reason is that they really don't have any way to gauge the value of what we're doing. And so I know this is preaching to the choir on this. One of the things that I talk about in the book is you build the social capital by giving it all away, right? Some of that means you're not going to be for everyone. You're going to express strong opinions, and it's going to chase some people away. But if you can get to the true fans who do trust you, now you're not in the lemon market anymore. You're not being discounted anymore. People are willing to give you whatever it takes because they are fans of you and your practice personally. I love it, Mike. All right, so we're going to start to wrap things up, but before I do... Tell people what the name of the book's going to be, how they're going to be able to get it. Yeah, so right now, if you go to lawyerforward.com slash book updates, 
you can sign up to be on a mailing list where I talk about what's going on with the book. I'm, I'm trying to be very public about writing this. So if you go there, you'll get updates. It'll also give you a broader overview of what the book is about. I'm going to pull beta readers from that group, so there's going to be a number of people who will get the book for free as well. So if that's of interest to you, go to lawyerforward.com slash bookupdates. It will launch this year at the Lawyer Forward Conference in Austin, which is January 24th to 26th. So you can also look at lawyerforward.com for tickets to that if you'd like or more information on it. But the point is, at that event, the physical copy, I'll deliver it then, and then it'll also be available on Amazon. Excellent. All right, so before we get to our tips and hack of the week, I do want to remind everyone to go to the Facebook group where some of you are watching this now, so obviously you don't need to go there, but those of you that have not gone to it, make sure you join up there just because you have people like Mike there that are sharing a lot of great information. Also go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast, give us a five-star review there. Jimmy, what's your hack of the week? So I've been listening to a guy named James Shramko. He's a marketing guy from Australia, and he said something that really struck a nerve with me, which is, you know, a lot of people talk about having a, a content calendar, and I always butt my head against the content calendar, and I, sometimes I feel guilty for not having regular times where I create content. And you know what he said? He said, I create content when I have something to say. And talking to Michael and watching him write his book, I've been he's been kind enough to share his book with me. And I've been trying to edit parts of it. Michael clearly has something to say. So I think that as lawyers, especially busy lawyers with an active practice, that we, we should not beat ourselves up over not being able to stick to a content calendar if that doesn't work for us. And more importantly, we shouldn't be creating content when we don't have anything to say, where we just feel like, oh, it's that time to do a video. I better do a video. And I think that that having that mindset of, well, because I know the best the best videos I've made are the ones where I really was sort of passionate about it and, and really had something to say at that moment. I mean, but doesn't that, I'm going to push back a little bit. I, maybe I just don't understand what you're talking about, Jimmy. Like, I mean, that kind of gets away from what Gary Vee talks about, right? Because Gary Vee doesn't wait till like Gary Vee's always talking and is always putting stuff out there. And that's what he says you should do. Are you saying that that's not true? I'm saying that it doesn't have to necessarily be true, that it can be true. I think Gary Vee is such a spaz and such a hyperactive guy that he's always, he just, and he records everything, you know? So I think that's just him. But I think for me, having this mandatory schedule of when I have to create something, sometimes I put out stuff that isn't as good as the stuff that when I wake up in the morning and I'm upset about something or I have something I want to say, that content is always 10 times better. Can I just I say, it. by the way, the Internet thrives as a cult of uninformed opinions. Lawyers should not do that. So if we're talking about creating content for the purpose of just putting something out there, please do not do that. We don't need your <laughs> your your Periscope videos of your, your barely touched opinion. Develop ideas. Develop opinions. People want real expertise. I love it. All right. So, Mike, you know the routine. What is your tip or hack of the week? I am a big fan of Habitica. Uh, this question was raised on the group recently. Habitica is a daily task app that is fantastic, and also it's gamified, so you can do it with your kids and fight dragons and stuff. And I find that my kids are a better reminder for how poorly I'm doing with my life than any alarm on my phone. My kids are real open about my failure. So involve your kids, use Habitica, and uh, uh, let them shame you as publicly as they can. Love it. All right, so I'm going to share one that Mitch Jackson has, has shared in his Legal Minds group. And just so you know, if you 
if you have not joined Legal Minds, it, it may be something that may interest you. So definitely check out Legal Minds. He's got some pretty good deals out there for Max Law users. So, but he's recommended Agora Pulse. I hope I'm saying that right. A G O R A P U L S E. I think it's Agora Pulse, but it's apparently a replacement for Buffer and Hood Suite, things like that. And he swears by it. So I'm going to check that out, see if I like it or not. I've been trying to find a solution because I find Hood Suite odd to use seems weird and i've never really used buffer but i'm gonna check out agora pulse so that is my tip of the week thank you mike for coming on it's been great we really appreciate it absolutely guys thank you michael bye everyone later thanks for listening to the maximum lawyer podcast to stay in contact with your hosts and to access more content go to maximumlawyer.com have a great week and catch you next time.